To support this podcast, go to positivesarcasm.com slash donate. Any amount is appreciated. Once again, positivesarcasm.com slash donate. Thank you and enjoy the program. Almost like it never existed, but it fucking did. So do me a favor. Go f*** yourself. share donate positive sarcasm.com slash donate any amount is appreciated you got the weeble app you can go ahead and get started with your cash management you don't even have to invest in any stocks if you just want a, a high yield savings account five percent interest it's not too bad especially if you're putting money in there every single week sign up using my affiliate link in the description down below you'll get free stocks to get yourself started and i'll get free stocks just from you signing up it, you know i can't tell you to sign up but it wouldn't be a bad idea if you did um but of course positive sarcasm.com slash donate if you want to do it the old-fashioned way merch where pages available if you have questions concerns or comments you can hit me up on my website positive sarcasm.com or email me directly positive sarcasm at outlook.com um posing music for bodybuilders i'm working on some right now if you need the clean version by the way if you need the clean version of a song if it's an explicit song some places will kick you off stage if you uh go on there and uh things are a little more spicy than the judges want until they'll stop the song and throw you off stage uh, so if you want the clean version uh i'll ask but i may forget so just let me know when you're asking for posing music, if the song is explicit, whether you want the clean version or the dirty version, or the excuse me, the original version, the pure version, ah, uh, whatever you request, I will make for you though, okay? But you can email me with those requests, proposing music in the contact section, and if you're not sure, just let me know. Um, in the meantime, I want to do two things. I want to start. I want to start by talking about Oppenheimer, and I want to go through all of Oppenheimer in general. And then I want to talk about. I want to get into some dig Q and A and solve some white people problems. But first, all right. I saw Oppenheimer. It was three hours long. Now to get an idea of what people were, how people were saying. First of all, I don't give a shit about Barbie. All right. I don't care about that stuff. That doesn't mean anything to me. That's not entertainment to me. Um, I focus solely on Oppenheimer. I knew it was going to be very, very long. I know the history with Christopher Nolan. I know his ups. I know his downs. I know he's had um, some fantastic movies. Like, I loved Interstellar. I thought Interstellar was, like, uh, one scene away from being one of the greatest movies ever made. I didn't like Tenet because I felt Tenet was emotionally detached. Um, Tenet was interesting, though. It was it was very interesting. Like, with anything that... Uh, excuse me. Anything that... Christopher Nolan touches. It's always it's always interesting. It's something worth talking about. Um, and there, the one thing I really appreciate about it about Christopher Nolan is he he tries his ass off. He really does. He works his ass off. His team they spend a ton of time, a ton of money, and they get the best actors, the best people for the job. I love that about Christopher Nolan. Um, I love. Batman Begins is, quite frankly, in my opinion, the greatest Batman movie ever made. It is. It it's the it is. It's the best. It's the most haunting. Um, even though it doesn't really have like a true villain, although I know Scarecrow is definitely uh, also played by Killian Murphy, or is it Cillian? Killian. Fantastic, fantastic movie. The, the I mean, an amazing origin story. Excellent cast. Fantastic. Uh, loved Interstellar, as I just stated. Um, his earlier workings, like Insomnia. Uh, Insomnia's great movie. Um, what was the movie he did that? Memento. That was where he first got started. Um, that's where he really put his name on the map. But then he got a chance to direct the Dark Knight trilogy. However, the Dark Knight Rises, um, with all of its huge set pieces, extremely clunky. Ex- just, yeah. Like, it had that emotional... The emotional stuff was still there, but it moved like a tank, and it was clunky, and you could see the flaws in it, um, which made me sad. But whatever, you know, you move on. It's like, all right, what's your next thing? He did Dunkirk. Dunkirk was uh, cinematography. I mean, that brilliant, 
fantastic. Like the it just ex. I mean, everything about that movie was excellent, except it did nothing for me. Like I couldn't appreciate. Like when it comes to like uh, war movies, because this was a war movie, a serious movie about a serious situation where thousands of soldiers are stuck on the beaches of Dunkirk and the Germans are closing in on them, and we got to figure out a way to get them off the fucking off the rock. But emotionally, it didn't. It just didn't pierce. It just didn't do it. Whereas interstellar did batman did tenant didn't do it tenant for some reason the main character first of all did it just sorry there was no it was there was nothing there there was no emotional uh, uh, nothing there it's just it, and it didn't even though the movie got off you know to a quick pace it just it got moving it's like okay we're here it didn't it just didn't work i'm sorry for those of you who did like the movie it just it wasn't for me and Dunkirk was, when it comes to uh, war movies, didn't work for me either. There was another movie that came out that, uh, I think in the same year or a year after, 1917, which I thought I found to be more interesting. I found it to be more entertaining, um, it, as much as a war movie can be. But, you know, it's like, okay, I think at this point, it's like, what is Christopher Nolan going to be up to next, after Tenet and after... But I know he's going to keep trying, and he's going to hit me with some movies that I know I'm going to love. Now, Oppenheimer, it's obviously your three hours. You're invested. You're like, what is this? And it's called Oppenheimer. It's not called The Bomb. It's not called The Trinity Test. It's it's called Oppenheimer. So one can assume it's going to be about Robin Oppenheimer. And indeed, it was very much so. A lot of close shots. So I was trying to say hydrated, folks. So... A lot of shots of him very up close. So the whole movie essentially is a basically up close with Killian Murphy's gaunt face. And he always looks like he's one comment away from crying throughout the entire film. So there's a lot of facts, uh, a lot of things. I'll, I'll talk about the historical facts that Oppenheimer, the movie, ignores a pivotal moment towards the end of the film, a person who they reference, and then the possibility of conspiracy theory hinted at regarding this incident. Um, so it starts off really like beautiful. Like it's very uh, there's a lot of sparks, there's a lot of radio waves, and it's very cool. It, it kind of draws you in. But it's referring the scene where all the sparks are flying and it's showing like the universe and everything like that. It's showing, it's trying to reference what's going on within a, a real scientist's mind. What is going on in Oppenheimer's brain? Because he's so in depth with his, he's so in depth with the science of what he's of quantum th- uh, mechanics. And he's trying. Uh, essentially, in the movie, it references to him trying to build it and make it popular in America, or excuse me, make it popular in America. And as he's become more and more accepted in the community, it starts to dive into his political affiliations or political suspicions. Because I remember in the movie uh, *The Hunt for Red October*. Well, let me just finish this thought here. The beginning is beautiful because it mostly it's just trying to get you a sense of what's going on in Oppenheimer's brain, how the sparks in his how the the signals in his head fly. And it's just a really incredible thing and then it kind of stops and pivots into the next thing. And it the timeline flips back and forth. And the point of per- the perspectives flips back and forth to subjective to objective, where you have a lot of black and white scenes, and then you have colorful scenes, and the noise is unexpected in the movies, and in, in this movie, like there's a lot of like scenes where there's like stomping and shaking and vibrating, and weird like, you know, whizzing in the background. Um, it's very eerie in that way. Um. But then it switches over to his political affiliations when he meets the girl that uh, you know he ends up having a relationship with. When he meets the the communist party, and it's, it just starts to dive into that. And I didn't really dive into too much. Like I didn't 
think anything of it. I understood that back in the, the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s, communism was something that was discussed very heavily in the United States due to the fact that it was popular in a sense, I guess. But the war kind of really put a black and white on that. And anybody who was, during World War II, anybody who was considered um, a communist at that point, because they had a feeling that Russia was going to rise to power, was instantly uh, notated and investigated. And that's why you had like the McCarthy hearings and things like that. And it was it, it was a weird time, a very very weird time. Um, you couldn't just be waving an American flag. You essentially had to have it tattooed on your ass. Uh, and that is something. If you wanted to look into that more, well, we'll talk about some of these things. But the McCarthy hearings um, were essentially the point of which this was focused on. Um, but that being said. It focuses a lot on Oppenheimer in his political affiliation, the fact that he was supposedly very left-leaning or very questioning from a left-sided perspective. And it was fine, but it was very open, like the, the fact that he was Jewish, the fact that he uh, had affiliations with people who had communist parties or communist get-togethers or communist communications, um, Spanish Civil War, lots of things like that. Um, so it was... It was open. The movie talks about it very heavily. It plays a huge factor throughout the entire plot. Um, but you know what's funny is the fact that, especially in today's climate, how do I want to word this? The idea that something political and cultural was such a heavy plot point in the movie, I didn't feel like it was preaching to me, whether it was good or it was bad. It, the movie talked about mostly, are you loyal to the United States? And that was what we were trying to get it to at the heart of the matter. Was Robert Oppenheimer an American? He was an he, but and at the end of the day, yes, he was. But he was also conflicted with the very thing he was about to create. And obviously, Albert Einstein plays a factor in this because he essentially came up with a lot of these initial theories and then Oppenheimer took that it was like when Ridley Scott made Alien and then essentially James Cameron went hey cool story bro I'll take it from here and then we're just gonna fucking we're gonna send in the marines and we're gonna have aliens everywhere we're gonna have a queen that's kind of what Oppenheimer was he was essentially the James Cameron to the Ridley Scott he took what Einstein had created and made it uh, all too real. All too real. Like, well, 25 kilotons real. And I was asked the question, how big was the Trinity uh, test? And I, I originally thought, I thought it was only a few kilotons. I thought it was relatively small. Um, I, no. Um, that's the one thing I've not done enough history on, enough research on was the actual Trinity test. I know about the Tinian Islands. I know about the Tsar Bomba. I know about a Castle Bravo. I know about all these tests, you know, um, hydrogen bomb test, thermonuclear, you know, how big were the uh, explosions in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But the Trinity test, I thought was only a few kilotons. It wasn't. It was larger than the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. Hiroshima was only 17 kilotons. The Trinity test was 25. You know how much fucking TNT that is? That's insane. That would take out any American city. You name it. Gone. 25 kilotons is insane. So, um, understanding the idea... What was cool about this movie, though, is... Trying to be historic as historically accurate as possible while trying to keep it in a three-hour window, because you understand you're not having an audience all you know an audience of people wearing pink. Um, this was a audience that wanted to really. I mean, some people obviously went there to just see the bomb go off, um, which we'll get to in a minute. But I mean, I don't want to spoil it too much, but we will dive into it. The movie does focus a lot on on Oppenheimer, his confl his conflicted beliefs about creating something. 
Um, but when I first understood who Oppenheimer was, essentially, I was watching the movie, one of my favorite movies of all time, The Hunt for Red October. It's about a Russian submarine captain who has uh, he is in full command of a submarine that's never been made before. Essentially, a, a submarine that can run silent. It has a magneto-hydrodynamic drive that can run undetected through the wa- through basically all the oceans. And the SOSIS warning nets, these are the uh, Navy's warning nets that let people know if, let the American people know that, or let's, let's the American military know that, hey, something's coming this way. What the fuck is it? It lets us know that something's passing through the waters so we can get ready. It's the same SOSIS warning net that heard the bang from the Titan submarine when it imploded. People thought this was secret shit. It's like, no, it's been around since like, I think the 70s or the 80s. We actually talked about it. SOSIS warning nets. It's been around for a very long time. These SOSIS warning nets let, let you know if there's any noise in the water. These SOSIS warning nets are essentially the things that led to, in theory, this movie, The Hunt for October, being made and creating this drive. What made it so dangerous is this thing could be parked, essentially, right next to Washington, D.C., and we wouldn't know that it was there until the missiles were in the air. Which means you'd only have... Because generally you have thirty between thirty minutes and one hour for a if a rocket was launched, it enters orbit, suborbit, splits up, and then re-enters Earth's atmosphere. So you got about between thirty and thirty and forty thirty to forty-five minutes before it strikes its target. If you have a boat that you don't know is there and it's got twenty nuclear missiles in its gut and it just launches them and it's right out and it's basically right in the harbor, you got a few minutes. That's it. A few minutes. There's no time to escape. So, very dangerous. In the beginning of this movie, the KGB security guard, uh, the KGB security officer, is reading a reading this book, and that it was the diary of the captain. And the diary simply states, "What is this pat? You all, what you wrote and underlined this passage? What's this passage here?" Uh, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. And Ramius replies, it's an ancient Hindu text quoted by an American. And he goes, an American? He goes, "Uh uh-huh. He invented the atomic bomb and was later accused of being a communist. This was the Soviet Union, obviously, so there you go. But that was the first thing, and I read this, uh, I watched this movie when I was very young. It came out in the late 80s. It was a fantastic movie. One of the greatest movies I've ever seen. One of the greatest, probably arguably the greatest submarine movie ever made. And that was the first time I knew about who, the idea of Robert Oppenheimer. And then I started reading a little bit more about him, and I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then obviously, a historical figure being put into a movie directed by Christopher Nolan. All right, you have my attention. Let me see what Christopher Nolan's up to. And obviously, he's doing other things, but it's like, all right, let's see how he plays with a historical figure because i was not impressed by dunkirk i was impressed by how it was made but emotionally not doing anything for me and that movie should have done everything for me and it just didn't do it now this movie doesn't really focus on um emotion however it is there and honestly watching the movie i felt like i was on trial like, I felt like I was Oppenheimer. I felt like I was on trial. I felt like I was being blamed. When he was in the kangaroo court, when Strauss was in front of the, the, the uh, that judiciary committee or whatever that was, that hearing or whatever that thing was, um, I felt like I was being attacked. Like, I took it, pers- I took it personally. Like, that's how it made me feel. Not as a Jew, which Oppenheimer was, um, but just... Me in general, like me sitting there, it's like, what did I do? I, I, I didn't. I never talked to these people. I don't know what you're talking about. But that was what made it so good. Is you felt like you were on trial. You felt like you were being scrutinized and your phones tapped and everything like that. And the twist in the movie is quite good, even though it's a historical. You know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a historical movie. 
the twist in it at the end, well, twist and then twist, is very good. It's you kind of you if you don't know the history, you don't see it coming, and it's very very cool. And everybody who was in it was fantastic. Like all the other scientists, the hydrogen scientist, uh, Matt Damon's character was pretty straightforward. Um, the Kenneth Branagh's character for however long he was in it, fantastic. Emily Blunt, fucking fierce, awesome, loved her. Uh, the I'm sorry I don't know her name. The, the one who played the other girl, uh, she was great. Uh, nice titties by the way. Congratulations on your titties. Uh, but strong, strong performance by Emily Blunt, really, just because she was so tight-lipped and stern in this movie. And the fuck you she gives to the guy at the end was, like, awesome. But really, a, the emotion was just the feeling of guilt. Like, what did I – I didn't do anything. I'm not – I didn't do – I didn't do anything. So it plays on that. Um, a lot of questions being thrown, a lot of pressure on Robert Oppenheimer to create something. He understands he's on the clock. The Germans are creating something. Apparently, the Russians are creating something. He's on the clock. He's got to do this. And then, but through this whole thing, he understands like if he creates this, he's opening Pandora's box, and then there's no going back. And then there is the question of if he doesn't do it, because the Germans have already been defeated, so why build the bomb? Well, he understands that the Russians are also building it as well. Another movie, Outbreak, where Donald Sutherland talks about, did we drop the bomb? Did Truman drop the bomb to save millions of Americans from having to storm uh, the beaches of Japan, actual mainland Japan? Or did he just drop the bomb to scare the Russians? It was kind of an offhanded comment in that movie, but kind of made sense. And I'll be honest with you. Truman was an asshole. <laughs> he was an asshole. Um, but I guess in that situation, you had to be in order to do what was needed. Because there's no mistaking it. Over 100,000 people died between the two uh, the two nuclear explosions in Japan. Over 100,000 people dead. Several thousand people would die later on from radiation. Radiation sickness. Ex just mere exposure. But an actual invasion of Japan with land, air, and sea forces. Non-nuclear attacks. First of all, the casualty list on both sides would be astronomical. And I don't know if Japan would have actually surrendered. Because Japan was so, such about honor through death. That I don't know if they would have actually surrendered. To get them to surrender on the islands, on the outlying islands, Okinawa, uh, you know, the it was near impossible. Near impossible. So... It may have been necessary to do it, but the idea of what the Pandora's box that you're opening, apparently through the movie as well, and through the real-life testimonies of Robert Oppenheimer, he was opening a Pandora's box that could not be undone. And his hesitation and his asking of questions, whether asking, you know, he had friends, he had a, a, a Patriot fans, Obviously, you know, patriotic fans, like very uh, right of center type folks that were, you know, they were for love and country. No, no ifs, ands, or buts, you know, and they didn't want to hear any left communist bullshit. They didn't want to hear about any of that stuff because we're in a war. We, and one of our allies for this war is not people we're generally fans of, the Russians. However, the Russians essentially won the war because the amount of bodies they were able to stack up on both sides, unfortunately. So, the movie was complex. You had to pay attention. Um, and the scenes that you didn't expect to be loud were loud. 
But the actual scene itself, the actual Trinity test itself, was dead silent. You're sitting there, you're waiting to hear, obviously, because this... So in Mount Saint, when Mount St. Helens erupted, you saw the explosion before you heard it. Apparently, the same thing at the Trinity test. But it was bright, but it was dead silent. And it was ultimately um, underwhelming. Like, when I saw it, I go, oh, it was quick. Because it is quick. You know, it's boom, first five seconds, giant bright light. And then it just kind of settles in, and you just see the explosion. But there's no CGI in this scene. This, the actual explosion itself was indeed an explosion. Christopher Nolan made it practical. But this movie is not about the bomb. It's about the man who built it. Because after the movie is, after the scene happens, after the, the testing, there's a whole nother hour of shit in this movie. A whole other hour of just, you know, the te you know, him getting freaking, basically raked over the uh, the coals by Strauss and this kangaroo court committee, um, and it's just it's it's wild. It's like, oh my god, this is the guy who literally saved millions of Americans from having to invade Japan, and he's, of course, an American hero. One of many, thrown under the bus. Eventually, I believe he was given the Nobel Prize. Um, but how much of I mean, how much of uh, Christopher Nolan's dedication to actual historical facts? He was treated like essentially like garbage, just for think you know for his thinking. And it wasn't whether you disagree or not. He just he asked a lot of questions. And. At a man of science, as Oppenheimer truly was, I understand why he would ask a lot of questions. And apparently, he made that time of that 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 time of not as black and white. Apparently, the 1940s was not as black and white as some would show it to be. It wasn't so much Americana, and there was a lot more going on. So, but it doesn't. It doesn't preach to you. It really just tries to make you feel like you're in the shoes of Robert Oppenheimer, a very complicated, science-dedicated, truth-dedicated individual. Uh, and it only makes you appreciate him more for, for all of his flaws, which, you know, all men have flaws. He is uh, he's a true American spirit. For all of his disagreements for how things were going... He still, at the end of the day, was loyal to his country. And I appreciate him for that. And I appreciate Cillian, Killian Murphy for depicting him so beautifully. And Christopher Nolan, you know, hats off to you. You did a really good job. I mean, and Robert Downey's character is fucking phenomenal. Absolutely. A very Robert Downey type of character. A lot of, lot of actors in this movie that you're just like, oh, it's that guy, oh, it's that guy, oh, it's that guy, oh, it's that guy. You know? So, um, oh, my dog's barking. Chase, come here. Come here, buddy. Come here. Come lay down. Oh, boy. Anyways, um, what else do I want to talk about with this? So, at the end, hey, handsome, are you okay? You relax. You relax. So they talked about historical facts in the movie, um, but at the end, apparently, there was a a nod to. So in reality, uh, Strauss, Lawrence Strauss, was apparently not one of Oppenheimer's biggest fans, and I guess tried to railroad him um, after the bomb had been dropped and basically have his clearance removed because he didn't want any. He didn't want Oppenheimer having anything to do with atomic energy. Or with the U.S. military after the bomb was dropped at all. So Lawrence, apparently Lawrence Strauss, like, you know, really tried to railroad him. But he was essentially voted down by his peers. And one of the people who they say it 
very specifically in the movie, like, oh, they threw this name in there, was John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy voted against. Um, yeah. So how was John F. Kennedy? Here's, an, here's a quick article on it. Let's go ahead and pop that button on the article monitor. How was John F. Kennedy connected to Robert Oppenheimer? So in one of Oppenheimer's final scenes, we learn that John F. Kennedy had a hand in bringing down Louis Strauss. But what exactly did he do, and how was he connected to J. J. Robert Oppenheimer? Well, the majority... Okay. Uh, While the majority of Oppenheimer centers on the creation of the atomic bomb, a huge portion of Christopher Nolan's film focuses on the uh, uh, physicist's rivalry with Louis Strauss. That rivalry comes to a head when Strauss is denied a position in the President Eisenhower's cabinet for how he treated Oppenheimer about the Second World War. Eisenhower was one of the per- was the first president when he left office. He goes, "Beware of the military-industrial complex, because it's coming." Throughout Oppenheimer, we learn that Louis Strauss, Louis Strauss, is a member and then chair of the Atomic Energy Commission, the AEC, and used his power to be a driving force behind the 1954 hearings that saw. Oppenheimer stripped of his security clearance and with with it much of his credibility. By 59, Strauss was in contention to be named Secretary of Commerce in President Eisenhower's administration. But before he could be confirmed in the role permanently, he was subject to his own hearing process, which is common in uh, American con- American politics. As Oppenheimer shows, there was reservations against Strauss's appointment due to the way he handled the Oppenheimer affair as Many scientists believe that Strauss had a personal vendetta and unfairly made the father of the atomic bomb a pariah. In the end, Strauss's appointment was rejected by a vote of 46 to 49. We were told in the film that one of the key voices in swaying senators to vote against Strauss's appointment was a junior senator from Massachusetts by the name of John F. Kennedy. How is it connected? Beyond being involved in the downfall of Louis Strauss, John F. Kennedy set the wheels in motion for the eventual reversal of Oppenheimer's security clearance being revoked. In 1963, now serving as president, Kennedy awarded Oppenheimer the Enrico Fermi Award, a scientific prize given to honor lifetime achievement in the development, use, or production of energy. Enrico Fermi was an Italian-American. Somebody touch my spaghetti! Physicist responsible for creating the world's first nuclear reactor and also worked on the Manhattan Project alongside Oppenheimer. Many of Oppenheimer's political friends lobbied for him to win the award, which Kennedy accepted as a means of political rehabilitation after Oppenheimer had lost his security clearance nine years earlier. In December of 2022, the current Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, announced that the decision to revoke Oppenheimer's security clearance was being retroactively reversed due to the flawed process that Oppenheimer was subjected to. Um, John F. Kennedy was unable to actually present the award. Despite Kennedy announces his plans to award Oppenheimer with the Enrico Fermi Award, well, the president was unable to do so before he was assassinated on November 22, 1963. Instead, newly appointed President Lyndon Johnson presented Oppenheimer with the award on December 2nd, only a matter of days after Kennedy's assassination. Kind of a bittersweet. This leads to a particularly notable scene in Oppenheimer, where Emily Blunt's Kitty Oppenheimer coldly refuses to shake hands, shake the hand of Edward Teller, who won the Enrico Fermi Award in 1962 after his testimony against her husband in the 1954 hearings. Ah. Yeah. Kitty Oppenheimer. So why did quote... Yeah, he... I mean, why did he quote the Bhagavad Gita? Um, The Bhagavad Gita, Hindu scripture, in which is thought to translate the song of god historians are uncertain compromise of 700 verses and divided into 18 chapters the scripter explores the tale of uh pandava prince arjuna and his encounter with the hindu god vishnu who appeared to him through charioteer guide krishna uh authorship of the bhagavad gita is widely attributed to the sage uh vida vyasa although hindu mythology the text was said to have been originally written by the god ganesha uh J. Robert Oppenheimer was famed for reciting two quotes from Bhagavad Gita. Upon witnessing the explosion of the Trinity nuclear test, Oppenheimer was reminded of the phrase, if the radiance of a thousand suns were to burst at once into the sky, that would be like the splendor of the mighty one. Speaking in a TV broadcast years later, the physicist explained that another verse in the text also entered his head at the time, one that Oppenheimer would become more synonymous with. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. That's 
Nuckin' Futz. So, that was why JFK, uh, JFK apparently set the wheels in motion. And then there is, of course, in movies, the TV didn't... Christopher Nolan intend to comply a conspiracy because Louis Strauss was so adamant about getting Oppenheimer out of the way. And then, obviously, Senator Kennedy was pivotal in making sure that Strauss never got to be in the cabinet. What happened to Kennedy years later? And are the two connected? Because I definitely... Obviously, you kill one Kennedy. That's one thing. You kill two Kennedys... All right, questions should be answered. Um, actual history would suggest Kennedy's role in Strauss not being confirmed is relatively minor. For example, Senator Clinton Anderson was more strongly and publicly opposed to Strauss's confirmation than anyone else. Um, so more than, more than likely, more likely than no one wanted to cement Strauss as a real-life bad guy in the eyes of the audience since Kennedy is still pretty popular. Um, however, I don't know if he was... Com- maybe he was... Um, implying some type of conspiracy because Kennedy was a big deal. And actually, Kennedy was the one who was supposed to uh, award uh, Oppenheimer with the that, you know, energy award. But Kennedy did actually make some enemies within our own government. And that very well may have led to his death. And I think absolutely that there is something behind his death. I don't think it was just somebody, you know, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald didn't like him, blah, 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 influenced by the Russians, set up shop on the tower, took off Kennedy's head. Uh-uh. Way more to it. You don't just kill an American president. So, um, what do I recommend Oppenheimer? Uh, four out of five stars. Really good movie. The explosion, underwhelming, but the silence that took place during it, really cool because it kind of changed everything. And you know what's cool? When everybody was watching it, the silence, dead silent in the audience. Dead silent. That's what, made it, that's what actually made it so cool is everybody was just fucking watching. Nobody said shit. And that's what made that really, really cool. So, Oppenheimer, four out of five stars. It's doing really, really well in the box box office. Uh, if you wanted to actually watch a real movie, I would probably not go see Barbie. I'd probably go see Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning if you're looking for serious entertainment, but you're looking for something to really discuss afterwards, I'd definitely go see Oppenheimer. All right. That being said, we're going to close up shop with some Q&A because I saw a couple good ones I wanted to check out. By the way, if you want to support this podcast, go to positivesarcasm.com slash donate. Any amount's appreciated. The Weeble app is also uh, available there. There's a link. And there's, of course, there's one in the description down below. Go ahead and sign up. You get yourself some free stocks as soon as you find your account. No risk attached. Get moving. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. Dig.com Q&A. Will the balance on the credit card I secretly opened under my boyfriend's name hurt his credit score? Yes. About a year ago, I came on hard times and did something I'm not proud of. I used my boyfriend's social security number to open a credit card in his name. I was out of work and couldn't get a credit card of my own. I used the card to survive and bought groceries, prescriptions, etc. And used it to pay some bills. I haven't made any changes, new charges since I got a new job. The balance is around $4,800. I've always made the minimum uh, payment, about $245 right now, on time. If I die, would he be responsible? Well, I heard his credit score. This is this is a fucking felony. This is credit card fraud. This is uh, identity theft. Th- this is this is as black and white as black and white is. You are so irresponsible. That's forty eight hundred dollars. I don't even know how old your boyfriend is, but the mere fact that he has over four thousand dollars in debt. If he's only got a. a he could be de- he could be denied uh, another credit card loan. He could be denied college loans. He could be denied uh, housing. He could be denied an apartment. He could be there's all kinds of stuff. You don't understand what you've just done. And this, you need to pay this off now. You need to pay this off now, and um, you need to. He also needs to be compensated. So not only does he need four thousand eight hundred dollars taken off of his credit right now, you need to give him. $5,000. Go fucking... I don't care how many dicks you suck to get that money. You need to get this to him because that's going to... That's 
going to affect his credit for years because the balance is $4,800. What's the limit of the credit card? A high credit card limit for a long period of time can damage your credit score. This is unacceptable by any measure. And if he decides to call the authorities and have you put in handcuffs, he has absolutely every right to do so. Would he do it? I don't know. And I have no problem with him not or whatever, but you need to pay off that balance now. You know what you need to do? Take out a fucking loan and pay that thing off. And you need to take out a $10,000 loan, give him five grand and say, here, here's $5,000. Sorry for the troubles. And if he dumps your ass, he has every right to do so. I get it. You fell on hard times. How is that my problem? How would be that my problem? All of a sudden, you you open up a fucking credit card. You use my social security number. And this is, yeah. If I die, will he be responsible for the debt? Yes. Will you hurt his credit score? Yes. Are you hurting his credit score right now by, by only paying the minimum? Yes. Everything you're doing right now is hurting him. Yes. You need to pay it off, and you need to match him for the amount of money that you have currently on that credit. Because it's going to take him two to three years for that to actually be past tense. It will take it. Yeah, you know, great. He's got credit. Awesome. That's not your. It's not your decision to. De- it's not your job to decide what he does with his social security number. Not in any way, shape, or form. It's illegal. Period. You shouldn't have done it. Anyways, let's move on to the next one. Uh, should I tell my boyfriend that I'm I'm upset that he asked to be added to the title of the home I'm buying to live in alone? Uh, I am buying my first property at the age of 28. Congratulations, which I am extremely proud of. When I told my boyfriend, he had a really negative reaction. He started talking about how this would impact him in the future if I were to move in together. For context, we t- haven't talked about moving in together as we have been dating for less than a year. <clears throat> he freaked out. Uh, about okay he freaked out about where all of his stuff would go if there was enough space for his instruments etc he talked about how he deserved a vote in the process because he presume because presumably in the future he would move in his stream of consciousness ramble his stream of consciousness ramblings then took a bit of a turn he started saying that he doesn't want to pay for my mortgage and give me free equity while he got nothing and that the whole thing didn't feel fair to him that he did he then demanded to be on the title and i have a hard time letting this conversation go because i feel like he isn't supporting me but i also can't verbalize why i feel so upset about this conversation whenever i bring it up he tells me that i'm dismissing his feelings um okay first of all congratulations on buying your first piece of property um that is extreme it is uh, a lot of work it's a lot of responsibility and the fact that you're able to do this all on your own is is nothing short of impressive all right no issues there um your boyfriend has no say in the matter none like uh, yeah none yeah none none I, you know what? None. Because it's, you've only been dating for less than a year. You're buying a piece of property and he's all of a sudden focused. Well, if he wants to be, if he wants to move in there, then what he does is he signs a lease. So that's, that's very simple. He doesn't want to pay your mortgage. Well, huh? That's like a, that's dumb. It's a dumb thing to say. You don't get, you just, if you move in, you... Uh, if you're buying a house together, you get a say. If you're buying a house on your own and then he decides to move in, yeah, he pays rent. He pays the rent, he pays a bit of the utilities, and that's that. Like, I don't, what, what is he saying here? Um, where is the part here? He doesn't want to be paying for your mortgage and give him free equity while he got nothing? Well, it's it's not his He's not buying the house and putting him on the title. Okay, cool. You're buying if he if you two are buying a house together. Well, obviously, if he's putting bringing money or his name, he's going to be on the mortgage or he's going to be on the title or he's going to be on both. Okay, obviously because he's putting his ass on the line too. 
But if you're buying the house on your own, then it's you and you alone. You put his name on the title. If he decides to move in after the fact, then the amount of bull- the it's going to be a bitch to get him off of it because then lawyers get involved and then things get way more expensive. And then if he, yeah, you you don't want to go this route. I'll tell you this right now. No, if you're buying a house together, he gets a say. If you're buying a house on your own, he doesn't get a say. If he wants to move in after the fact, you you go through like a legal Zoom or something like that and you get a lease agreement going and you say, okay, if you want to live with me, here's the lease agreement you sign. Okay, it can be month to month. It can be six months. It can be a year. It really depends. Um, and treat it like that. And if he says, well, I'm not doing that, it's like, well, fine, go, go fuck yourself. There's, there's no stake in it for him or there's nothing in it for, for you. And it's like, sorry, you're investing, you're taking a huge risk on a piece of property and you're, you know, you're really proud of it. And he's not stated anything about you being, you know, about his, you know, like, wow, my girlfriend's really responsible. I, I should be, you know, supporting her and stuff. And then if I decide to move in, I can figure out where my stuff goes. Or if we decide we want to upgrade, maybe I should invest some of my money into helping us get a bigger place or extending the place we have in. Not this fucking childish bullshit. No, this guy's a child. You know, I may be a child, but this guy is a fucking toddler. You know, kick rocks, bro. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, let's do one more. Should I ask my employee's boyfriend to start getting up earlier so she can get to work on time? I manage an employee, Sarah, who does good work. She's dating a colleague in another division. Cool. This is fine in principle as our company has no policy on dating coworkers and they work in different departments. Okay. Over the past two months or so, Sarah has been late to work, late for work nearly every day by up to 20 minutes. I asked her about this in a one-on-one meeting. She got a bit flustered. It turns out she recently moved in with her boyfriend. She drives... She drives him into work as there is no public transport where they move to, and he's bad at getting up in the morning. We work in a field where certain tasks have to be completed by certain times, so it is important employees are on time. Absolutely. 100% agree. A few minutes late occasionally is an issue, but she's consistently 10 to 15 minutes late since moving in with the boyfriend, which means she's rushing to get her work done. It also seems unfair by her colleagues who arrive on time. Fair. Sarah also offers to make up the time after work. By that point, all of her tasks are done. So it pretty much forced her to stay behind with nothing to do. Okay. I really don't know what to do here. Should I speak to her boyfriend? No. Well, should I speak to her boyfriend? He's a manager, so he receives less scrutiny over his timekeeping. But it seems really weird to ask a colleague to get out of bed on time in the morning. I thought about asking her if she wanted to change her start time and reshuffle the task within her department slightly so she starts at 9.15 but then her boyfriend might also have to change the start time and they wouldn't get until 9.30. I really don't want this to seem like I'm interfering in their relationship. Um, Alright, the person who's late the person who's late you need to talk to. That's unacceptable behavior. Um, and as a manager of a department that's extremely unprofessional that you are forcing another employee to show up late because you have a problem getting up on time you shouldn't be a fucking manager Um, Sarah's under you you need to listen can't be late for work it's unacceptable figure it out you're a great asset I'd hate to lose you but you need to be on time that's it or start docking pay Look, as uh, me, as a person, I don't like being late for shit. I don't. Okay? I don't like being late for shit. You get there on time. You get there early. You prepare. That's how it works. Un- it's unacceptable. And you know what? You know, it does ultimately... It is mostly, mainly, her responsibility to get to work on time, but somebody's got to say something to the boyfriend here as he's a manager because it's like, look, bro, you're fucking slacking. That's un- that's, that's unacceptable. So, uh, We are at 48 minutes. We're going to go ahead and close up shop for this week. I uh, appreciate all you who have questions, concerns, comments, and all things PS related, so go ahead and hit me up in the, the, thing, the areas that you, f- uh, you feel uh, you get the most out of this uh, website, this project of mine. Uh, questions, concerns, comments, uh, hit me up through my website at the contact section, positivesarcasm.com, or email me directly, positivesarcasm at outlook.com. 
You, the uh, video version of this podcast is available on Rumble. And, of course, audio anywhere where podcasts are available. I know Stitcher has officially closed up shop. But, of course, you know, Apple, Spotify, now that we've sorted this situation out, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, anywhere where podcasts are available, the audio version is available there. In the meantime, thank you for listening, watching, and subscribing. And I'll talk to you all next week. Recorded here from the Spare Parts Studio. This has been a positive sarcasm presentation.